I think there's some change coming in the body of Christ, and I want to point out some things um, that I foresee happening. Um, this isn't like necessarily a thus saith the Lord type thing, like just get ready, hammer's coming or any of that kind of stuff. Just bear with me for a little bit. Because I want to show you guys some things. In John chapter 15, verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. I know we've read this every week here for the last several weeks, but I, we really got to get an understanding of this abiding in him. What that means, what it entails. We know what the word means because we've talked about it. It means to remain stable in a fixed state, connected to something, conforming to something. This abiding in Him. Now we know that He abided in the Father. We know that He is the vine. And He says that my Father is glorified by us doing what? Producing fruit. What is the purpose of the branch? It's one thing. It's not to look pretty. Some of us pull that off. Some of us don't. <laughs> it's all right. But, I mean, think about that. If we are on this earth to glorify God, which we would all say, yes, that is what I want to do. I want my life to glorify God. Then how do we do it? There's really only one way. Because you can think that, like, well, yeah, but I go to church, or yeah, I, I give, or yeah, I, I do this, or yeah, I do that, but... According to what Jesus just told us, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. How do we bear fruit? We have to abide in the vine. So there kind of seems to be a causal effect here. We cannot glorify God in our life if we're not producing fruit. We can't produce fruit if we're not connected to Jesus. Is that fair? Because that's what he essentially said. What we have to begin to figure out is what does he mean by that? And how do we do it? Because if you ask people all over in the church today, because I guarantee you, the churches today have several hundred people just in our little area that are sitting in there. If you ask them, are you living your life for God? What do you think they're going to say? Of course I am. But how do we know? There's only one way. There's only one way. We do not produce fruit by sitting at home doing nothing. We also do not produce fruit by simply going to church. Because that's not what he said. Not one time did Jesus give a mandate for you to show up every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night and any other time we decide to gather together and say, do this, that's all I need from you. Not one time. In fact, the only mention really of, of the importance of gathering together is said by Paul, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There's not really a mandate that says, you must go to church, thus saith the Lord. But there is a principle behind it. Because when we assemble together, what happens? Well, we worship. We get into His Word. We spend time in His presence. If you look in the book of Acts, what happened when the people assembled together? 
Well, sometimes they shook. Other times the building shook. So apparently it was important. Because what seemed to happen is every time that they would go out to do the work of God, they would reconvene and discuss what just took place. One of those times, we're not going to get into this today, one of those times was right after they got some persecution. They said, listen, we're going to let you go, but just don't teach anymore in that name. And so Peter, and, and they go back, and he said, listen, guys, here's all the stuff that happened. And they begin to worship God, and they said, God, thank you that we are counted worthy to face persecution for your namesake. Is that our attitude? Is that much of the church's attitude today? No, we try to lay low, stay out of the way, be unnoticed. Because if we're noticed, then people may not like us. And if we're doing things for God, you know what else might happen? The enemy may attack you. And maybe if I just stay just here and just doing enough, he'll leave me alone. Now, nobody would ever verbalize that. Nobody would ever come around and say, like, yep, that's what I'm doing. But that is how we're living. Because we're waiting for God to do something, and yet God's waiting for us to do something. It's a causal effect. We've got this idea that I'll believe it when I see it. But you have to believe it in order to see it. It's the concept of faith and trusting God. That God, if I do what you said, you will meet me where I'm at. You will hold up your end of the deal. The Bible is written entirely about God's holding up his end of the deal. Even when that end was things they did not like. God, we're going to go and worship the Baals. You cool with that? Okay, great. We're just going to go ahead and do it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. By it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So in order to please God, how do we approach him? By faith, by trusting him. There is no other way, correct? How is God glorified in our lives? By producing fruit. How do we produce fruit? We're abiding in him. We are trying to separate and isolate these things into categories of which that we can do. As if we grow in faith. Do we technically grow in faith? Why would we need to? If the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain, what does it take to fix a broken leg? I'd say it's harder to move a mountain. Now you may say, oh, that's just an allegory. Maybe it is. But apparently it doesn't take much. So why are we sitting waiting? God, if I only had the faith. All it means is we don't really believe what we see. We don't really believe what we hear. We're waiting on God to do something. Instead of being the God who's moving. Christ in us. 
the hope of glory, moving and doing these things. We're waiting for God. I, I asked you guys this last week, maybe even the week before, that if we're standing before God and our time is through, and he says, well, what have you done that I should allow you into my heaven? Who owns heaven? It's not you and I. Are you entitled to it? Of course not. You're not entitled to anything. You don't deserve anything. So what have you done to deserve to go to my heaven? To find peace and everlasting life and everlasting joy. What have you done? There's only one correct answer. I made Jesus my Savior and my Lord. Those are two separate things. Many people will try to answer, well, I did this or I did that. Lord, Lord. That's not the answer. But that's what we're trying to do. Whether we admit it or not, that really is what we're trying to do. We're trying to do things that would be pleasing to us. Therefore, it must be pleasing to God. Do you think the litmus test to God is when you get up there, it's like, okay, now let me ask you this, and this is important. How much money did you make in your lifetime? What was your 401k when you retired? What kind of car did you drive? Do you think he cares about any of that? If the man paves the streets with gold, do you think he cares about what you can amass? No, of course not. But what do we spend all of our time trying to do? It's those things. Those are the things that we try to do. All right, let me ask you another question. Now, I, I'm going to let you in, but I need to know this. How athletic were your children? Because if that's a question, we're, I'm in trouble, y'all. Okay? Those poor kids. Genetics, it's not good. How much time did you devote your child's life to playing sports? Because it's important. Consumes our lives. If you have kids, you understand. It consumes our lives. You think God cares about any of that? There's nothing wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is we're so focused on the here and the now, we're missing the eternity. We're missing the things that matter. And part of that is because is we don't actually believe, number one, what God's Word says, and number two, that we are the one that should be producing fruit. You know who we always wait for to produce fruit? The pastor. He's limited too. Some of it's genetics. I mean, but that's where we're, or we're waiting on that superstar spiritual person that will step up and either have a word from the Lord or they go out and evangelize, like, yeah, let them do it. You know what we're quick to do in America? Write a check. You know what we're slow to do to America? In America, talk to somebody. Why? Because we have plenty of resources. We lack nothing. We're not hurting. I've been doing some research recently, and this is, guys, if you know me, you'll understand why I nerd out on this stuff, but the term food insecurity that's getting thrown around, is being thrown around the last several years, about how we have 35 million people food insecure in America, and therefore we got to have all these programs and things to help them out. I'm like, what does that even mean, food insecurity? Because when I look around America, and I go to Walmart like you all do, most people look like me. I go to Golden Corral so I can feel thin. I fit in well there. And so it's like, who's insecure? Who's going hungry? I've yet to meet the person. I think Stan or somebody was telling me recently that he'd met a guy on the street that was begging for money. He says, I won't give you money. But he's like, I'll get you a meal or something. And the guy's like, listen, you don't understand. This is how I make my living. And it's a healthy one. When we were living in Tulsa, a lawyer got busted. He must have been young in his practice because at the end of the day, he'd get done, he'd go change clothes, sit on the street, beg for money, jump in his BMW and head home. 
He got busted. He was making an extra 50 grand a year. Just in the evenings. It's quite a night shift. This is 2000, y'all. I mean, this is a long time ago. 50 grand a year, like, man, not so much. Rewind a little bit. That was a lot of cash. And it was cash. So we've got all of these things that we're like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do that. But are we really producing fruit? Are we really chasing after the things and doing the things that God's told us to do? Now watch this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to watch something here. We're going to start in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have this ministry. Now who's writing this? This is Paul, okay, writing to the church in Corinth. So he's talking about this ministry. Explain it in a minute. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, when he talks about handling the word of God deceitfully, not walking in craftiness, he's being very specific to issues that were taking place at that time. Because you may not realize that, that not everybody who preached out of the Bible is a Christian, is from God. Satan used it against Jesus. And then he says, but by manifestation of the truth. What does manifestation mean? It's like a demonstration. It's taking place. The manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, you remember how we read that last week? Here it is again. This is Paul. This is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. If we were to create a hierarchy of Christendom, where would you place Paul? There's Jesus, maybe Paul, then the rest of us, and then the church of Corinth, because they were screwed up. But what did he just say? Ourselves, your indentured servitude for Jesus' sake. What does that mean? That means that I am in service to the Lord, bonded by him, because who owns him? So that's why he's there. That's why he's writing to them. For whose sake? Jesus' sake. Not even for their sake. For Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, what is the treasure? It's the gospel. It's what Jesus did. This is the treasure. What's the earthen vessel? Pinch it. It's in us, Jesus in us, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And now you will have that song in your head the rest of the day. Yes, okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. Verse 10, always carrying about in the body... The body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, what he did, that the life of Jesus, also what he's done, may be manifested in our body. 
So I'm carrying his death in my body that his life may be manifested through my body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, and that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. When he says always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that's not hyperbole. He was always being persecuted unto death, threatened with death for Jesus' sake. Verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Now, that's a passage out of Psalm. I believed, and as a result of my belief, now I speak. Is that what he says? Yeah, is that true about everything? Absolutely. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. You'll know where somebody is based on what they're saying. Especially when times get tough. Because he's talking about the persecution. So you'll see what happens when somebody is squeezed, what comes out of them. Knowing, verse 14, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now, what did he say? Knowing, that's knowledge, that's trust, that Jesus, or who raised up Jesus, will raise us up with Jesus. That's confident. That right there is faith. Were you there when Jesus was resurrected? No, you were not. What do we rely on? The eyewitness testimony of the Gospels. And the words of Paul. That's where we get it. That's all we have. We don't have physical evidence for it. You may say the Shroud of Turin. Maybe. We don't know. But what we do have is eyewitness testimony. And we're relying upon that. In fact, we put so much hope in that event that we gather together weekly. Sometimes twice a week. Sometimes three times a week. In fact, we put so much hope in that fact that it should dictate how we live our lives, how we spend our money, where we go with our free time, what we say to those around us, how we live in our homes, how we act in our workplace. It has such an impact on us, it actually changes everything that we do. Because you should be able to look at somebody and say, I think that person's a believer. It's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And according to Paul, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus isn't resurrected. And we're still lost in our sins, and our faith is futile. It's of nothing. It's useless. We're staking a lot on something you and I have never seen, never experienced. Most of us have never seen somebody raised from the dead. Perhaps you know of somebody. You read it, you heard it, maybe you know them personally, maybe they raised somebody from the dead. I know many people have made the claim, I've never seen it, but I take them at their word. I don't know. But look at verse 16, therefore, so because of all of this, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things are, which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now think about this. 
And I want you to think about this for a moment. How much of your life, what you do, where you go, what you spend your money on, what you listen to, has to do with this world right now? How much of our time, where we go, what we do, how we spend our money, has to do with eternal things? Because according to Jesus, the only thing that matters is the fruit that produced, that God would be glorified. And yet we spend so much of our time and effort on things of this earth. What I said first thing is God is never going to ask you how much money you made because he doesn't care. What does he care about? How you handled it. That's why Jesus talked about the woman with the two mites. It wasn't how much she, she didn't have anything. What are two pennies going to do for somebody? Nothing. According to Paul, not the apostle, he won't even bend over and pick one up. It's got to be a dime before he's got to reach all the way down there. And if there were two of them, he's just doubling down. He's like, nope. There's a story he told this morning. I mean, but think about that. It was what she did with her resources. But yet we spend all of our effort, our energy, trying to make more, produce more, do more, have more, be more. And yet we can't find peace in any of it because no matter how much more you acquire, more will be required. You'll be solace for a moment. Oh, yes, this feels good. I've arrived. I've got what I want. I got the things until the next thing comes. If you don't believe me, go look at the people who win the lottery. Statistically, it's not good. We had a neighbor that actually won $50 million in a lottery one time, okay, before we were their neighbor. We accidentally bought the junkiest house in a great neighborhood when we lived in Hastings. We didn't even know the rest of the houses existed because they were in the middle of paving the road. and It was so rainy and muddy you couldn't get there. We had to take like a back route. And then after we bought the place, we discovered, look at all these very expensive houses out here. We're in the slum part of that. But they were an enigma because they actually did not squander the money. They actually had some of it left. But most people, if you, I think the statistic is 87% of people who win a large amount in the lottery have said something to the effect about 10 years out, they wish they'd never won. Isn't that crazy? Because we just talk about, man, if I could just make more, then I could pay off this debt. If I could pay off this debt, then I could do more for the kingdom. How about we just do with what we got right now? It's important to pay off the debt. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But we're so focused. Man, if my kids, they could just go and they could do this. If I could turn my kid into a super athlete, then maybe, just maybe, he'd get offered a scholarship to go to college and I don't have to pay for it. And maybe, just maybe, he'll be good enough at a sport that he'll get to play professionally and he'll make squillions of dollars and everybody will be screaming his name and then maybe, just maybe, some famous rock star will want to date him. I don't have enough faith for any of this stuff, y'all. I mean, but that's what we do. We invest all of our time, energy, resources into carnality, into things of this earth, thinking we will find something that will complete us. And yet when we stand before God, what's he going to ask? How's my fruit? How's my fruit? Look at James chapter 2. Verse 14. What is a prophet, my brother, and if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, 
And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, let me explain this. I explained it last week. Let me explain it again. This is not talking about earning your salvation. It has nothing to do with that. It is talking about a demonstration of the change that's taken place in you. And it gives this demonstration here that it says, well, if you see a brother or a sister. Now, this is somebody in fellowship. This is not somebody that's on the streets necessarily. Because if you ask them, they're all brothers and they're all sisters. I have never received a phone call from somebody requesting funds in any way that was not a brother or sister in the Lord. They always start with that little nugget of information. You start asking questions, you discover pretty quick where they are. I had a guy one time, I had the back door unlocked because I was expecting somebody. I'm in my office, I have the door shut in my office because I'm easily distracted. So I keep the door shut so that shiny things going by don't distract me from getting stuff done. And I, I'm on the phone and I get this knock on my door. Now to my knowledge, I'm the only person there. And I say, hey, come in. Which is probably not smart, mind you, but whatever. And they didn't open the door. And I said, well, hang on a second. And I opened the door, and there's this older gentleman, and he's standing right there, and he looks at me. He's like, are you the pastor here? I said, yeah. He's like, I just want to thank you for your commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that you do. You know what my follow-up was that? How much you need. <laughs> and guess what? He gave me a number. Now, was he? Do- I don't know if he's saved or not saved, and that wasn't the point. But that's how it always starts. What do we judge based off of? The fruit. So he says, when you tell somebody, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, you say it, but you have the means to give them the things which are needed, and you don't, what does it profit? Do your words do anything? Nope. Do your actions take care of everything? Absolutely. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're the one who needs to be warmed and filled, you should be trying to warm and fill others. That's not the same thing. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So what does he mean? Well, it's very easy to tell what you believe based on what you do. Fair enough. I mean, let's just go back here recently. In 2020, it's a crazy time in our country. Now, we didn't know what was going on. There is no manual on how to handle a worldwide pandemic, right? Many churches shut their doors. We did not. Many churches did. You know why we didn't? Because I can't preach healing in one breath. And then close because of a virus in another. And we're just a nothing burger here in the middle of, of, of small town Missouri. But when you have healing rooms, healing schools, what have you been preparing for? And you shut your doors? So what did we learn? They don't really believe what they say. Or they don't have the boldness to stand behind it one of the two the school i went to closed their healing school at at the advice of the governor they had good relationship with them they were concerned they didn't want to hurt that relationship i think they regret that decision now and many do okay again there's no manual but we saw something we shouldn't have the church was exposed during that time this is one example 
how can we preach this and not live it? I told you guys this. I, I got a phone call from the mayor during that time and because uh, he was getting several phone calls about us being open and what was going on, and I had a great relationship with him. And they had put out a request that all churches close and everything close, and we just, I said, no, we're not going to do that. Everybody is an adult. They can stay home if they want to stay home. You know, you, you get to choose you, right? You do you. If somebody, and this is okay, sometimes our faith is not where it needs to be. We recognize it and we grow. We don't necessarily test it out right in the middle of uh, the time, right? But we should see it, look in the mirror, okay, I've evaluated, now I need to change. And so when he called, he said, Chris, I just need to know what's going on. I want to hear straight from the horse's mouth because I've gotten several phone calls. And I said, well, I'm so glad you called. His name was Chris. And I said, here's the deal. I said, you are a government entity. And in no way can a government entity tell us as a church what we are going to do. And I said, and I know you mean well. And he and I were, were friends. And I said, I know you mean well. And, uh, but if you try to close us, it will not end well for you because I will fight you all the way. I said, you mean well, but the next guy won't. And it's a precedence I'm not willing to set. I said, secondly, we're a church that before I ever got here had priest healing. We've seen people miraculously healed in our services and outside of our services. So how can we say it is God's will to heal the day we lay hands on the sick and they recover and then we shut our doors when it's time when there's sickness going around? We can't do that in good conscience. And I said, thirdly, if I'm wrong about everything else, we all know where we're going. If it gets us, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We'll be all right. And he just laughed. He's like, uh, what time do you start on Sunday? I said, 10 o'clock. He's like, I'll just direct anybody who calls to you from here on out. I said, that'd be super. I'll be here at 9 o'clock. You just come on and send them in. Now, I wasn't doing that out of arrogance. I was doing that out of the fact I can't in good conscience close. I didn't have all the answers. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But, but I knew that we cannot say one thing and live another. That's what I knew. And so we had no choice. That is exactly what James is talking about here. You cannot say, be warmed and filled. But I've got money, and I've got things, and they're hurting, and help them. Be warmed and filled. Prayers. Take care of the need. We do this as a result of the belief or the trust that we have in God's Word. In James chapter 1, I promise I'm moving along. James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he? He's an indentured servitude. I owe God everything. I will serve him with all of my life. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How many people in the church you think he just described? it'd be a lot double-minded talking out of both sides of our mouths because we don't truly believe how do we know what we believe what we're willing to do if you believe that a bulletproof vest will stop a bullet you'll have no problem putting one on and having a trigger pulled you have no problem you trust it that is what faith is Verse 21, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers 
of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. And he observes himself, he goes away and forgets immediately what kind of man he was. And he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in all that he does. Now, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? It means that we do what the word says. This is not complicated, right? You do not have to understand how Greek syntax works in order to get this piece. It literally means to, hey, I read this in God's word. Therefore, I will do this as a result. We've seen this and we have done this if we've ever given our life to Christ. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And what happens? We'll be saved. Saved from what? God's wrath. Why? It's been satisfied by him. So we believe that. So now we're walking around all confidently. Yep, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. We have no problem with that. Anything else we begin to question. So we've already done that. That's one way that we have been a doer of the word. It means to act on what it says. We're moved to action by the commandments of God. We actually read our Bibles if these are the words of God. It's God's words. If Jesus walks into the room right now and stands up and says, listen, I need you all, everyone, I want you to listen to me. Today, when you go home, I want you to go talk to your neighbor. And tell them I love them. And tell them I died for them. And tell them that they are on a pathway to destruction. But I came that they can have life and more abundantly. I want you to do that. Will you do that for me today? If Jesus was here, what would we say? Yes. And guess what? He said. If he was here, he says, I don't want you to watch that football game tonight. Some of you would be like, that's that angel of darkness looking like an angel of light thing. I get it. But I mean, think of what if God himself were standing here giving directly those commandments instead of we reading what was written down by other people. We would treat it completely different. Why? What do they do when they give a proclamation? They write it down. They sign it. And they hand it off. And what is every person expected to do? Act on it. Why do they have laws that are written and not just verbal ones? Because if it's just verbal, it means nothing. Why do we treat God any different? We see people who are moved by the words of God. We saw with the woman with the issue of blood. She was moved to action by the words of the prophet. What do prophets speak? If they're true prophets, they speak the words of God. And in Malachi, we see that when the Son of Righteousness comes, He'll come with healing in His wings. That is the talit, the, the zitzits that are on there. That's the same thing, the tassels. If I can only grab the hem of his garment. Why? She's not supposed to be anywhere near people. She made every person that she came near unclean in that moment. But she knew that is Messiah. And when Messiah comes according to God through the prophet Malachi, he comes with healing in his wings. If I only can reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. She believed God's word, and she acted upon it. She risked everything. You know what she could have been punished with? Death. Did you realize that the evidence of her breaking the law ended the moment she touched Jesus? Prove it. What about Noah? Do you realize, you may know this, you may not know this, it had never rained. Never one time had it rained on the earth. And God says to Noah, 
I want you to build a boat. You've got 120 years to do it. That's a long time. I want you to build a boat because it's going to rain and it's going to flood. You know what he didn't seem to ask? What is that? He'd never seen rain. He'd never experienced floods. Well, yeah, I mean, all he knew is that God said he was going to do this. I need to build this boat. He was moved by God's words. Abraham, same thing, moved by God's word. Moved to action by God's words. That's a doer of the word. I'm doing what God had said, and therefore it was accounted unto them righteousness. You guys getting this? I hope you are. Because this is so different than how it's presented we are presented a gospel of simplicity, a gospel of ease that we just get saved. Now we're good. I can do what I want. I can go where I want. I can live how I want. I'm under grace. That's not what it says. Everything about our salvation is that we are a bondservant unto Jesus. And therefore, Jesus, what do you want from me? And many of us are sitting here waiting for a sign from heaven, an angel to appear in our bedroom at night to tell us, okay, here's what I need you to do. When we have the words of God just giving us the basic mandate. Do angels appear and sometimes give direction, of course. Do Jesus stand before somebody and say, here, specifically what I need you to do. Of course, we see that all throughout Scripture. We see it with Paul. Paul, hey, great job. You didn't get anybody saved. That's cool. Now go to Rome. So we see that happen. That's possible. But why did Paul go all the places he went? Was it because... Every time he went to a new place, Jesus appeared before him. Okay, turn left. No. It's from the very beginning. He will be a minister to the Gentiles and must know all the things he's going to suffer for my namesake. It was one word from God that started his ministry. And he never looked back. Look at Acts chapter 2. We're starting verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It says, Men of Israel... This is Peter talking. Hear these words. It says that the day of Pentecost, all right? They spoke in tongues. They were confused. Didn't know how do we hear the wonderful things of God spoken in our own language. These are Nazarenes. They don't, they don't make any sense. Or Galileans, excuse me. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held up by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. What did he just quote? What David said. What David said under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We would call that what? The words of God. Men and brethren, verse 29, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's making a distinction between David and Jesus. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Where is that throne found? In Jerusalem. Did Jesus sit on that throne yet? Nope. How do we know that Jesus is going to come back and reign? Because God had promised that he would. 
We call it the millennial reign. Verse 31, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and you hear. So their seeing was taking place, their hearing was taking place, and Jesus has already been attested to them by what? All the signs, wonders, and miracles that God did through through him in their midst. They all know about it. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, therefore, so because of all I just said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Isn't that interesting how he says that? You know, we talk about making Jesus our Lord and Savior. Is the Messiah the Savior of the world? Of course he is. But he's both Lord and Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And it said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What did he just tell them? He presented the gospel to them. They're cut to the heart. What what do we do? You crucified him. God raised him up. He was attested to you and you rejected him. What do we do now? You repent. Verse 40, watch what happens. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Isn't it interesting? He says, Be saved from this perverse generation. And we're sitting here looking at the generation around us like, Could you be any more perverse? What do you think Peter would say to us right now? Be saved. From this perverse generation. But what did they do? If they were hearers only, what would they have done? They'd have left. But they were doers. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. About 3,000 of them. Out of how many? We don't know. At least 3,000. They were a doer of the word. Why was Peter there? He was a doer of the word. Jesus said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. What if he hadn't gone there? What if he said, uh, I'm going to go home. Kids got a football game. What would have happened? I don't know. I mean, think about it. Every person we read about was a doer of the word of God. Every person. And yet we think we get to do something different. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I promise, I'm, I'm wrapping up here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This is why I say these are eyewitness testimonies. For He received from God the Father, uh, from God the Father honor and glory, which such a voice came to Him, the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and we 
heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men of God spoke as they were moved by whom? So what were they doing? They were doing and acting upon the words of God. What did it cost the prophets to deliver the words of God to the nation of Israel? Many times their lives. But yet they were obedient. They knew it was going to cost them their lives, but yet they were obedient. Isn't that interesting that we try to do it different? Look at 1 Thessalonians. I'll give you a minute to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. It says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, what did he just say? So far, that the work of the faith and the labor of love that they brought, our gospel did not come with just word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit with much assurance. And you knew what kind of men we were. How did they know that? By the things that they were doing. Because what you've got to understand that was taking place is that there were many people walking around claiming to either be Messiah, to be a prophet of God, to be many, many things, even some of them claiming to be apostles of Jesus, giving them false information. Well, how do you know the difference between a Paul, who was once a Saul, and say some other Joe that is out there spreading a false message? By what they do. Not what they say. You can say anything. What you do is what matters. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Who were they following? Paul and the other disciples that were there. And of the Lord. They were being taught and trained by the men who were taught and trained by the Messiah. Fair enough. They were doing exactly what they were sold to do. Verse 7, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. How does one become an example for the things of God? You do the things of God. When we read stories of men in the past who lived their lives in a way and have these incredible testimonies, what were they doing? The things of God. And we act as if, man, that's incredible. Wish that could happen to me. I think I'll go play Xbox now. For verse 8, from, from, ah, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now that's interesting because these weren't people sitting around like, hey, did that Messiah guy show up yet? We're ready to worship. But what were they doing? Sacrificing the idol. They were worshiping false gods. 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who delivers us? From what? The wrath. That's what it means to be saved. That wrath is coming to those who don't believe. Those people in your family who apparently we don't love enough to be diligent enough to share the gospel with. Now, I am not talking about necessarily any person in here. Maybe you are doing this. This is wonderful if you are. Super. I'm talking about the church as a whole. Because the church as a whole is not doing very well in our neck of the woods. When I say that, I mean America. Because we are not presenting the gospel, we're presenting a gospel. We're not presenting Jesus, we're presenting a Jesus. We're not presenting the mighty words and works of God, we're presenting words and works of a God. Now that may sound harsh, but it frankly is true. Because we, as the Big C Church, get that the right way for y'all, the Big C Church are comfortable, lacking nothing, needing nothing. If I get a pain, where can I go? I go to a doctor. I don't need God. If money's tight, what can I do? There's somebody that'll provide food. There's somebody that'll pay my utility. Sometimes they'll pay my rent, my mortgage. Sometimes. There's always a way. If I can't do it that way, I can go to the bank and they'll loan me the money. Is that true everywhere? No, it's unique to first world country. So because of that, we stopped being a doer of the work because we don't frankly need Jesus except for one thing. I just don't want to experience that wrath. Is that what he called us to do? Not even close. Not even close. Look at 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to go through a couple of these real quick and I'm going to wrap up, I promise. 1 John chapter 3, it's verse 16. It says, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? What's he saying? Your actions don't match your words. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, are we? No. We're not sometimes even giving up what little resources we may have. Do you know why? Because we're not trusting God. We are trusting the economy. When I got my own bills to pay, and if I just go and work a second or a third job, or I sell this, then it'll take care of all my problems. I've never met anybody who's continued to make money and make more money that has solved their problems. Usually it compounds it. Again, don't misunderstand. We do everything we can. It's about what we're doing here. This is what it comes from. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 46, one you're familiar with, I'm sure. Luke 6, verse 46, it says, But why? Do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. So who is a person that hears the sayings and does them? That's a doer of the word. Okay, what are they like? Jesus is about to tell us. He's like a man who built a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose... And the stream beat vehemently against his house and could not shake it, for it was founded 
on the rock. So to be a hearer and a doer, being a hearer is not bad. You must hear before you do. Being a hearer and a doer can withstand anything this world throws at us. That's essentially what it just says. But look what it says in verse 49. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So those who hear but don't do and say, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. I'm going to do this my way because my way is something I can see, something I can touch, something I can explain. I don't see your ways necessarily, so therefore I'm going to go about this my own way. And what happens to them? The things of this life will continue to beat them. It's admitting where we are. It's saying, okay, what am I prioritizing above God? What is number one in my life? Unfortunately, for most of us, it's not God. Because we still have things that we withhold from Him. We still have things that I'm not willing to do for Him. There are still places I'm not willing to go for Him. Imagine if the apostles had acted like the church in America. You and I would not be having this discussion right now. Because the gospel would have never spread because all they would have been concerned with is their next meal and what they were getting. I'm not going to worry about these other people. i got to take care of me. Why did Jesus, when he sent them out, sent out the 12, sent out the 7, he said, take nothing with you. What was he demonstrating to them? Your needs will be provided by who? God. Don't worry about it. What do we do? Okay, i got to get this much put away, and i got to do this, and i got to do that, so that I can go and do the things of God. You know the first thing they taught us in Bible school? Don't be stupid and go out and finance a bunch of stuff. That way when you're done here and you graduate and God calls you some part, you can't go because you can't afford to. That was the, I mean, number one thing. You know why they have to teach that? Because it keeps happening. That's why. Why do we teach the same things over and over? Because we haven't learned. Why do they have to tell on a warning label, on a chainsaw, to not stop the chain with your hands or your genitals? That's not a joke. Because we have stupid out there. Isaac just waved at me. He's like, hi. He hasn't done that yet. I mean, guys, why do we do this? Because we have to. Why was Jesus explaining this passage? Because there were people that are going to do it. And we're going to stand before God in heaven and say, why should I allow you into my heaven? And he's going to, we're going to say, well, God, I gave money. There was this orphanage. God, I went to church every Sunday. I was baptized. God, I took communion. God, I prayed before my meal. God, I accidentally witnessed to this guy one time. I told him about it. Remember, every third Thursday, I take 15 minutes and read my Bible. What does he say? Get away from me, because I never knew you. We're not doers of the world. Let's look at one more. Titus chapter 1. And I'm done, I promise. I want you to see this. I'm going to share real quick what the Lord showed me, and then I'm going to explain it more in detail next week. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many insubordinate... So who's he writing to, first of all? This is written to Titus, but these are leaders of the church. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So these are people that were Jewish. 
maybe saved in Jewish, but regardless. Whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So we can, how do we know that? By their fruit, right? We see what they're after. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I don't know who that was, but apparently they did. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. That is a hearer, not a doer. That's a talker with no fruit. How do we produce fruit? We abide in the vine. That's it. This is not complicated, but it is hard because it requires a wholesale shift in our priorities and our focus of what God is going to do in us. When He becomes number one and everything else follows after that. But that's not the world we live in. That's not where we are. See, what I want to share with you briefly, I'll, I'll build upon this next week. I encourage you, try not to miss, because, I mean, these are things that I'm getting directly from the Lord. We are in a time right now as the church where we are living the book of Judges, where we're doing what is right in our own eyes, not asking God what He would have. We're trying to do the things through the flesh to bring through things of the Spirit, what does it take to be obedient to God? To trust and do. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and accepting what you hear as truth. And when you've accepted it as truth, what will you do? You'll act upon it. We're living in a time right now where there will be a separation. You guys were going to see this. I don't know how soon. You're going to see a separation in the church. That there will be people that you thought were living their lives for the Lord, but they're really serving themselves. Don't misunderstand me. They may be saved, but they will separate out. They will carve out. There is going to be a revival. It's been prophesied by many about an end-time revival. We are in that end times. In fact, I'll just say this now. There's a good chance, based off some stuff I've, I've gotten into here recently, that... Uh, we're entering into the last section, the last 50 years of starting in 2025, okay? Take that as it is. Don't panic. Don't do anything crazy. I'll explain that some other time if you want to know, but just bear with There's a possibility, okay? There's a reason I'm saying that. Hear me out. If that is true, does that make us more apt to act on the things of God? Of course it does. Should it? No. There's going to be a separation of people because that revival that takes place is not going to be one necessarily of some great man or great ministry where you flock to a place. It's going to be people who have the zeal of God, who are 
quickening and chasing after him and want him. And it's going to be guys like you and guys like me that are just going to be so in love with God that we just act upon his work. And we're going to go out and minister to those that we are near and around. And we are going to see the book of Acts come to fruition in our lives. That will impact the church, small C church, church like this. Why? Because suddenly we're going to get people saved and we're going to get people healed and we're going to bring them together. And what are we going to do? We're going to worship God and we're going to disciple and we're going to grow together. And what happens then? Those people are going to go and do the same thing. But you're going to see a separation, first and foremost, of those who are simply talking and those who are doing. You're going to see a separation. I don't know when, I don't know how, but you will see it. Don't be surprised if those you love that have professed to be Christian suddenly begin to get distant and disappear. Don't be surprised. The enemy is moving. He's blinding their minds. They're subjecting themselves to it. Their heart is not after the Lord's. They're falling for the temptation. I'm telling you now, and I've seen this here recently, there is an uptick of spiritual activity taking place. There's an uptick of attack that's going on. It always starts up here. We have complete authority over it. When that thought crosses your mind that you know this ain't right, this can't be right, you take authority over it. You stand on the word. There's more to come. I'll get into that next week. But I want you guys to see this. We are chasing after what is right in our own eyes. That's the church today. So with that, before we close, Jim and Alma are heading to El Salvador next Saturday. They are going to be doing some ministry down there for the week. Uh, it's always exciting. We've gotten to go with them a couple of times. We went with them once. You've probably gone with them multiple times. But uh, it's always cool uh, getting to see what goes on. It's a different world down there. They have pupusas. Um, Alma has promised that she will make pupusas for all of us here very soon. Actually, <laughs> Jim has promised on behalf of Alma. Oh, there you go. Papusa maker. I like that. That's like an air fryer or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, bring her back with If you haven't had papusas, they are like, it, it'll bring you closer to God. Just trust me on that. Uh, but we want to pray for them before they go. Jim, you mind coming here in Alma? You mind coming up here? And then let's pray for them as a family. Let's pray as they go. Um, if the Lord puts on your heart, put you know something in their hand to bless the families down there. There's incredible need. Like they know hunger. Okay, they don't they don't have what we have. They know hunger. There is need. But if you want to pray for these guys, we're gonna lay hands on them. We're excited to hear the testimony when they get back. It's gonna be good. It's always good. <laughs> Father, we just thank you for these guys that have devoted their life to serve the people in El Salvador, to be a light in a very, very dark place. Lord, I thank you for open doors of opportunity to continue the work that you put in their heart 20-some years ago, that your gospel will come and go into that place with signs, wonders, and miracles, and that lives will continue to be transformed as a result of their obedience to you. I thank you, Lord, that we get to be a part of that, of a result of their obedience, Lord, that we get to be a part of that ministry of what's taking place. And Lord, I thank you for multiple testimonies. I thank you for open doors. I thank you for favor everywhere they go. And Lord, I thank you for the best papooses on the planet. So Lord, we thank you that your hand is upon them for safe travels, and that everything they put their hand to will be blessed. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Well.
Yeah, so we'll miss him next Sunday. The work of faith. The work of faith. Papusas. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday. We are going to tear down Christmas here. If you can help, that would be wonderful. Thanks so much. My wife is leading the show.